Well, good morning, good morning. So good to see you. Uh, first time in four weeks it hasn't snowed on a weekend, and so it's good to have you guys back with us today. We're going to continue through this Believe and Live series in the Gospel of John. So if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of John. That's in the New Testament or the second half of the, the Bible. The Bible is made up of 66 books, and the Gospel of John is one of them. And we get to kind of go through over this next year. So make your way there. And if we haven't met yet, my name's Ryan. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at the church. Grateful to do that. Grateful to get the chance to open up God's Word and preach it each week. And so thank you for your generosity and your faithfulness uh, to the Lord to allow us to continue to do this. So John chapter 3, find your way there. And as you're going there, this, this week I had the invitation from Hope Academy School here to come and to share with their kindergartners what a pastor does and how we as a church impact the world uh, through missionaries that we support and through the way we pray and through the way that we even do church, how we want to impact neighborhoods to nations. And so I'm sitting here thinking, I'm getting ready to go speak to a kindergarten class, a bunch of five-year-olds, and trying to think, how do I help them understand uh, the kind of day-to-day tasks that a pastor does? What, how do you help somebody know that hasn't experienced things that you have and uh, seeing the things that you have to understand what you do day in and day out. So I'm thinking through some things, well, maybe they would understand teaching and, and prayer. They get a few of those things, but I don't know how to get the, the depths of all of these things into a level that they understand, like how we uh, manage finances and use those to steward to the glory of God, and how we, as pastors, lead uh, other people and also care for other people through times of suffering and pain. And Man, I'm just thinking about all these things, vision casting that pastors do, um, and communicate that to a five-year-old that, um, you know, hasn't thought about those things and hasn't matured yet to understand all those. So, thankfully, by God's grace, uh, my wife, who I realize every year is a greater gift to me than I've ever known when I first married her, she taught kindergarten for six years. And I said, babe, you got to help me understand how I'm going to teach five-year-olds what a pastor does. And so we talked about it for a little bit, and uh, we came up with some, some ideas and some ways to communicate it. And just decided to go biblical with it. We're just going to go with um, the image of a shepherd, okay? Well, I, I can explain a lot about what a pastor does through an image of a shepherd. And so I draw on the, the whiteboard, sheep and a shepherd, and I'm asking these five-year-olds, like, hey, what do shepherds do? And they're like, well, they protect sheep. And I'm like, yes, glad you got it. They protect sheep. As pastors, what we're called to do is to pray that God would protect us. What else do shepherds do? Well, shepherds take care of sheep. When they get hurt, they you know, bind their leg up or they take care of them. I'm like, yes, that, they do. That's exactly what they do. They take care of them. And so that's what we do as pastors. We take care of, of people. When they get hurt, we go and visit them in the hospital. We provide meals for them. We support them as our small group ministry. Like, yeah, you're, you're getting it. You're picking it up. I'm like feeling great in this moment. Like, but pride comes before the fall, okay? I'm thinking this is great. This is landing Really, really well. So I'm like, what else do they do? And they're like, well, shepherds, they lead sheep. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what pastors do. We open up God's word and tell people where God desires for them to walk and to live and what he desires for them to do. So that's what we do when we open up God's word each week. And so it's going great. I'm feeling uh, mighty proud of myself that I figured this out, how I was going to communicate these major tasks to five-year-old minds until the teacher opens it up for questions. And uh, the teacher's like, all right, what, what, what questions do you guys have? And one kid raises his hand, how do sheep know to follow the shepherd? 
And once again, a little pride wells up within me, and I'm like, I'm going to go biblical again. It's because they, uh, they know the voice of the shepherd. So they hear his voice, and since they know his voice, they, they follow the shepherd. But then I uh, decided to expand on the illustration on something that's true, uh, but had me backpedaling pretty quickly. I said, you know what's even true about that? The, the shepherd always leads from the front. The shepherd gets out, and the sheep hear his voice, and they follow behind. But the butcher, the butcher comes behind the sheep and he drives them to where they're going to go. Five other hands go up. I'm like, oh no. I'm like, yeah, yeah. They're, one kid's like, what's a butcher? And I'm like, uh, well, it's somebody that provides meat for people to eat. Where do they get the meat from? And I'm like, oh gosh, backpedal fast. Like backpedal, backpedal. That's where I am in that moment. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm trying to help them understand this. And the reason why I bring that up is because I'm reading this passage today, and it's Nicodemus talking to Jesus. And Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand these huge heavenly thoughts in a very practical way. And Jesus is going to give him this image, kind of this illustration to think about. And it honestly confuses Nicodemus a little bit. But instead of Jesus backpedaling out of this illustration, he leans in more to it. So I want us to see that today. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that's the image that Jesus is going to use, that he's going to lean into more. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and of spirit, we'll unpack that in a minute, water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born is spirit of spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, nor where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven. The Son of Man. That's a title that Jesus uses of himself often. Verse 14. And as Moses was lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have life eternal. Let's pray. Lord, I ask today that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to receive your truth. Lord, I thank you that you are patient with us, even when we struggle to see and struggle to understand. 
Thank you that you aren't easily angered or confused by our questions. In your love, you welcome our questions. You invite us to look and to live. So Lord, I ask that you would help us to do that as we look at your word today. Now wherever you are in your spiritual walk, wherever you are, would you just take a step of faith now and pray that God would speak to you through his word. Give you a moment of silence now to pray to him and ask him that. And then pray for me also. In the few minutes that we have together and we are opening up the word of God that I would be able to communicate it well. That you would see and understand his word. Pray for me. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to believe and live. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, this passage in John 3 is full of questions from Nicodemus. And so what I want us to do is just ask three questions today that Nicodemus is showing us here and even asking some of them himself so we can understand what Jesus is saying. And let me just say right off the bat that I'm not slamming Nicodemus. Um, I'm not speaking ill of Nicodemus. I'm actually very thankful for him. Okay, he's asking these questions because he doesn't understand, and he is a great stand-in for us. Because if any of us were there, we would be asking the same questions. And so he's kind of the face of our heart of questions. And so he's asking these questions so that we can see and understand this. And so I'm thankful for Nicodemus. But that's what I want us to do. Ask these questions that Nicodemus is asking and see how Jesus answers those. But first, the question I want us to ask is this. Why do we need the new birth? Why do we need the new birth? I mean, right here at the very beginning, we're starting to see something that John is unfolding to show us our great need for this birth that Jesus is talking about right here. And first you see it in the man of Nicodemus. It's interesting. In verse 1 and in verse 10, you see three things about Nicodemus. First in verse 1, you see that he's a man of the Pharisees. Now maybe you've read that in the Bible. Maybe you've always heard of the Pharisees as the kind of bad guys in, in Scripture, but the Pharisees were actually people who were good moral people. Like a Pharisee would be somebody you wanted to be your next door neighbor, right? That's what you would want as, as, a, as a good neighbor, a Pharisee. These are people that believed in truth and fought for truth, right? These are good moral people. They were even seen in good sight in society. They're kind of the moral glue that held some things together. And John is telling us, this is who Nicodemus is. He's this good moral man. He's the Mr. Rogers neighborhood kind of guy, right? But it also tells us in verse 1 that he's a ruler of the Jews. And this is important because Pharisee kind of highlights the fact that he's a pastor. He's a good guy. But the ruler aspect, ruler of the Jews, there was this group that ruled the Jews called the Sanhedrin. Okay, Only about 70 people were allowed on this council. And it would govern the whole nation of Israel. This guy is a part of it. He's one of the 70. So not only is he a good pastor, he's a famous person, a good leader, a good ruler for the, the Jewish people at that time. Jesus in verse 10 calls him a teacher of Israel. 
So even Jesus describes him as the teacher of Israel. So it's not that he's just a leader. It's not that he's a good person. He knows how to help other people move forward in these areas too. He teaches God's word. He teaches these things. This is who he is. This is who Nicodemus is. Now, this matters a lot to us. And the reason why is because it's showing us why we need to be born again. Think about this. Nicodemus had all the credentials to be accepted by God. All of them. He was a good man by the world's standards. He knew the Bible. He was a moral man who helped society. Surely he can see and he can enter in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is really clear to him that no, nobody can see or enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. Unless he's born again. And it's fascinating here because Jesus knows the heart of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes in and he's genuinely appreciative of what Jesus is doing. He's calling him a rabbi. He's, he's saying, we know that you're from God. And, and so he's, he's hitting on some of these things and Jesus jumps right to the heart of Nicodemus. And he's like, Nicodemus, I'm going to just cut through the fat. You need to know that there's no way you can see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Unless you're born again. And the same is true for us. There's no way that we see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven unless we are born again. Jesus continues to say it over and over again, just in case you missed it. Verse 3, unless you're born again, you can't see it. Verse 5, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 7, just in case you missed it, Jesus is like, you must be born again. Jesus keeps bringing it up to highlight the truth. We need this. There's no way that we can be saved unless we are born again. And honestly, a lot of times we hear this and we want to desperately try to, to soften this kind of statement. We'll say things like, man, I want to be a Christian, but not one of those born-again Christians, right? I don't want to be one of these fanatic, crazy people out there. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Christianity, but not wanna, I don't want to be a born-again Christian. But to say that I'm a Christian, but not a born-again Christian is an oxymoron. You can't do it. Jesus says that you must be born again. It's not strange. It's not weird. It's not even negotiable. It's not new either. It's foundational for Jesus. This was Jesus describing this. So it's important. If you want to experience Life and life everlasting, now and for all of eternity, we must be born again. If you want your life to be spent in heaven for all of eternity, it is founded here in being born again. And right here, nobody would have been more shocked by this statement than Nicodemus. Nobody. I mean, because if anybody laid claims to saying, I'm in the kingdom of heaven, or I've earned my way, or I see it, it would have been Nicodemus. But if Nicodemus needed to be born again, surely we too need to be born again. Surely. He was good. He was moral. He memorized the Bible. He taught the Bible. He helped lead people to follow God. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, you're not getting in. You're not. Your religious works won't get you into heaven. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus applies to us that we need to understand just like Nicodemus needed to be born again, we need to be born again. And so does the gentle Buddhist. So does a kind Hindu. 
So does a moral atheist. So does a, a fine Muslim. No matter what background or culture that you come from, no matter what standing you have in society, you need to be born again. Jesus insisted. He insisted it for us. And so why do we need it? Because apart from him, we have nothing but death and decay and suffering and hell in front of us. That's it. If we do not have this born again spirit that God places in us, then we have nothing. Nothing. And so an application that I would give to you this morning is to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself to see if you're born again. And this is a biblical command. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And this is not to breed insecurities or fears. This is meant to breed assurance. When we look and we know that we're in the faith, it should breed assurance and confidence. We are in the kingdom of God. We will not even see it. We will enter it. So let me give you just a couple categories to think through if you're evaluating, man, am I in the faith? Because religion, religion is one of the most common camouflages that keep us from being born again. Nicodemus was not born again, but he had all the religious camouflage. So the question is, are you living in your religion or are you living in a new heart and a new life being born again? You see, God stirs in our hearts through his spirit, but we must respond. We must respond. You got to understand that becoming a Christian is not like catching the flu. It's not like you wake up one day and you're like, oh man, my throat's kind of scratchy. Ah, and then two days later you're like, man, I got the flu, I'm sick. That's not how you become a Christian. You don't come to church and you're like, man, like I know these truths and I, like, I feel a little bit of these truths. Well, like two days later, you're like, oh, I must be a Christian because I've been around it and I've seen it. Like, no, that's not how we become Christian. The way that we experience this new birth is more like how we are married. Where you come and you make a commitment till death do us part. Where you come there and you say, I do. For better or for worse or sickness or in health, I do. I commit. That's what it means to follow Christ. It's a commitment. We talked about that just a few weeks ago where Jesus invites us, come follow me. And he's even made a way for us to follow him. But you can't just say, well, I'm on the fringes or I'm a Christian but not a born-again Christian. That's not an option for us. It's not. It's a commitment that we make before the Lord. And so I want to ask you, have you made that commitment before the Lord? Have you committed that you will love and follow Christ above all things? Because he's better than all things. Examine your heart to see if you're in the faith. Don't let yourself be camouflaged by your religious works. When you stand before God, you will stand naked if that's the case. Stand in your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. Another way to examine your heart to see if you're in the faith is, do you war with sin? Do you fight with the sin that's in your life? Do you repent and turn? Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, that's the sin in your life, and you will live. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean that you never sin again. Being a Christian is that you war with your sin. You hear what God's word says and you say, man, that rubs against where my heart wants to be. 
I don't know if I agree with all of that. And so you struggle with it and you fight to believe it and have faith. That's what it means. If you in your heart hear what God's word says and you're like, mm, I don't want to do that. I don't like it. I don't want to do it. I'll do the things that I choose, but I don't want to do that. Then you may not be born again. Because God calls us to a heart and a life of repentance. You see, we cannot be hospitable to our sin and be in love with God. We can't be hospitable to our sin and be at home with Jesus. Jesus gave his life to kill sin in your life. So you can't coddle it. You can't. Jesus came to rid us of these things so that we would have life and not death. So do you fight against sin in your life? Do you war against it? Do you repent? And another question is, do you love God and others more than yourself? Do you love God and others more than yourself? John, 1 John chapter 4, so the same author as the Gospel of John, in 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 says this, using the same language in here. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And he who loves has been born of God. Now I've got to give some parameters to love because in our culture we talk about love and it's very nebulous out there, right? But in Scripture, when you talk about love, when it talks about love throughout the pages of Scripture, it always highlights two things. One, sacrifice. Sacrifice. Do you love in such a way that you sacrifice for others? Whether that be your time, your thoughts, your finances, do you sacrifice for others? Or do you sacrifice others for yourself? Do you sacrifice others for yourself? That's not love. Love looks and is self-sacrificing. Second, Scripture always talks about love and talks about it in graciousness. Graciousness. Are you gracious with others? The people that make you mad and that push your buttons, are you gracious in, in offering forgiveness to them and love? When you look at your life, is your life mar marked by arguing and complaining and anger or by a gentleness and a patience and a love for other people. This is what God's word calls us to. That's what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 4. This is how you know you're born again. Because you love God, you'll sacrifice for him. You'll sacrifice for others because you know God has already sacrificed for you. You'll be generous and you'll be gracious to others because Jesus has been so generous and gracious to you. So examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. And if not, then make that decision. Make that, that commitment for the Lord. Are you born again? I will. I will follow you. Yes. Now, Nicodemus hears Jesus talking about this born again in verse 3. And in verse 4, he asks this question How can a man be born when he is old? And what he's basically asking is, What is this new birth? Like, what is all this? Jesus, you're talking about this new birth? I don't understand it. Like, can you help me understand it a little bit? And there's some humor here, and we read it, we miss it, but probably all the moms get it in this moment. But when, when he asks Jesus, you know, how can, this, how can I be born again when I'm old? He says, can I enter into my mother's womb and be born again? Like, like Jesus, that was hard when I was nine pounds and I'm 190 pounds now. Like, you're thinking I'm going to crawl back into the womb and be born. That's what you're saying I have to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? And I don't know exactly what happened this moment, but I remember Jesus, I, I, I pictured Jesus kind of being like, ew, no. 
Like, no, 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 you're totally missing my point here, Nicodemus. Like, no. And then he starts to explain what this new birth is. You see, as, as, as he's confused, as Nicodemus is confused in this moment, this is where Jesus could have backpedaled out of it. He could have said, you know what, Nicodemus? Man, that's not a great illustration. Let me think of another one to help you understand this truth of how you can enter in the kingdom of heaven. But that's not what he did. This is where Jesus leans in even further to this illustration, even though Nicodemus is confused. And I love that about Jesus. And the reason why, the reason why is because Jesus is starting right where Nicodemus is. Jesus starts where all of us are. He doesn't expect you to be where your best friend is and your understanding of Jesus He doesn't expect you to be where this person is or that person is. Jesus starts right where you are and then he helps you take those steps forward. And that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. See, Jesus doesn't pull back from this illustration because he knows where Nicodemus is. And I'm going to work my way to God. I'm going to be a moral enough person. I'm going to be a righteous enough person. And so Jesus doesn't give him a command in this moment. He doesn't say, if you'll do these four things, then you'll enter in the kingdom of heaven. No, you know why? Because if Jesus is like, hey, just love people, then we could concoct some kind of list of things to do and think we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. If I check these things off, I'm good. I'm going to enter in the kingdom of heaven. No, Jesus starts with being born again. Man, you go out there and try to find a list on how to do that. Go figure out how to birth yourself again. What's the one, two, three list of that? There is none, right? And so Jesus is like, yeah, you, you can't do this, Nicodemus. You can't do this on your own. You can't. You can't do this in yourself. And then Jesus, like I said, starts with where he is. Through the rest of this passage, Nicodemus keeps hearing Jesus quote scripture to understand this. Now that's God's grace. Nicodemus has spent his life with flannel graphs and charts and memorizing the Bible. And he would have memorized the entire Old Testament. He would have known that. And so Jesus, as he tries to help him understand What it means to be born again, he starts in verse 5 and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you have to be born of water and of spirit. That's where Jesus starts. What does that mean? Thanks a lot, Jesus. We're confused. Yeah, yeah, we are. But he shouldn't have been. And here's why. What he's doing is Jesus is quoting Ezekiel 36. You can go read Ezekiel 36. I want to highlight just a few verses from that on the screen. But Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27 This is speaking of what God is going to do to man. And he says this, I will sprinkle water on you. Same image that Jesus is drawing here. I will sprinkle water on you. What does that mean? Well, it means I'm going to cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. So when Jesus makes this statement right here, you've got to be born of water. What he's saying is you have to repent of of your sins. You have to turn away from your idols. You can't continue to to coddle those things and love those things. You have to turn away from those and see me as better and love me as more and greater than anything else. That's what he's saying in this moment. And God's saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come and I'm going to wash you with water. It's just this picture of I'm going to wash all the idols out of your heart and your life. I'm going to cleanse you. And then the next verse in Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit with you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. (laughs) Obey my rules. This is what he's showing them in this moment. So what does it mean to be born of water and of the spirit? One is we turn and we repent of our sin. And then God gives us a new heart, new desires, new things that we would love to do. And we're actually a little confused on why we would do those things now. It's because we're changed. We're different. We couldn't birth ourselves. So Christ came in and he gave us a new heart. New heart that turns from our sins and turns to him. That's what he's saying when he makes that statement. Confusing to us. But in God's loving kindness, that's exactly where Nicodemus was. He would have known that. And it's still a mysterious thing. And Jesus highlights that in verse 8. He said, like the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying it's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's mysterious and in a number of ways, but let me just highlight too. It's, it's a mystery to those who are outside. When God gives you a new heart and he changes your desires and the way you're spending your time and your money and your energy and your efforts looks different, people on the outside are, are curious about that. They're like, why? That's a mystery. Why is that person acting that way? I mean, even this week, we had a funeral in here and different people in their eulogy are, are, are sharing about how this man who, who knew Christ was a generous person and had a, a great marriage and, and worked hard, all these things they're sharing. And they're like, we don't know why. We don't know why. It's mysterious to them. We know why, though. It's because of what Christ has done. The Spirit changes our hearts and our minds. This is what the new birth is. He changes us. But it's not just mysterious to those outside. It's mysterious to us, too. Us in the sense of those who have believed and trust in Christ. I mean, this is the difference between a religious person and a born-again person. You see, if you go to somebody and you ask somebody, let's say a religious person, hey, are you a Christian? They'll get offended. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I do these things. Like, how dare you ask me if I'm a Christian? How dare you? They get mad and upset. They got their camouflage religion on and you're asking them, is there a change of heart? And it makes them mad. Makes them upset. Now you go to a believer, a born again believer, and you ask that same question, are you a Christian? They're like, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know why he would save me. I'm a sinner and I'm a wretched sinner and it is by grace and God's grace alone that he would save me. I don't know why he would choose me and I don't know why he would come and save me, but he did. And I don't know why, but he just did in his love and in his kindness and his grace. It's mysterious to us as well. We look at it and we're like, why? Why would your spirit come and give us a new heart? Why would you cleanse us from all our idols? I don't know. It's the love and the grace of God that does that. And that's a mysterious love. That's mysterious love for us. we got to see and understand that. And I would ask you, in in the form of an application, when, when people look at your life, do they see your life as mysterious? I mean, think about it. Even people who don't believe take care of their house, watch TV at night, have dinner with friends, right? Like what difference is our life than theirs? 
There should be something mysterious about our life because Jesus has changed us. He's radically changed us. The passions and desires that we used to have are different. The way we spend our time and our energy and effort are different. And it looks mysterious to a world that doesn't know Jesus, that's not been born again. And so is your life a mysterious life? Are people genuinely asking why you do the things you do and why you live for Jesus the way you live for Jesus? I hope and I pray that they are. I hope and pray that we as a church live in such a way that people are asking us that all the time. Asking us that. So is your life mysterious? Because the work of God is a mysterious work in which he invites us and saves us by this new birth. After Jesus has explained this whole illustration of the wind and walked through Ezekiel 30, 36, then Nicodemus still asks another question. In verse 9, he says to them, how can these things be? Which I think what Nicodemus is asking in that moment is like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but how does that happen to me? Like, how do I experience the new birth? How do we receive the new birth? And that's an important question. It's one thing to say, okay, we know why we need it. It's another thing to say, okay, we understand what the new birth is, but then how do we get it? How do we receive the new birth? And Jesus, once again, in his great grace and kindness, goes to the scriptures and points Nicodemus to two things in verses 13 and 14. First, he points him to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. And what Jesus is going to highlight with Proverbs chapter 30 is that we need God to come down. It's the only way that we receive this new birth is we need God to come down. Now, if you go read Proverbs 30, um, what Jesus is doing to Nicodemus in this moment, if you're from the south, you'll get this statement, but if you're from the north, I'll have to explain it. But what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's saying, bless your heart. Oh, bless. Bless your heart in this moment. And the reason why this is happening is because if you go read Proverbs 30, the writer of Proverbs is saying, I don't understand this. I don't understand the things of God. I don't understand the brokenness of this world. I don't understand all these things. How am I going to understand this? I don't get it. And he said, you know what? The only way that I'm going to understand this, the only way I'm going to get this, is if somebody comes from heaven to earth. And he even says, tell me his name. Who is this person that's going to explain all these things that I don't get in this moment? And that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's quoting, he's like, Nicodemus, you don't get it. You don't understand. And what you need you need somebody to descend from heaven. You know who that is? It's the Son of Man. It's me. I'm here. I'm here to help you see and understand these things. Because you will never understand it apart from me. You'll never get it. So he's saying you needed God to come down to explain these things to you, Nicodemus. You've been reading these words for years and they've never come alive. You've written them down, but they've never been written on your heart. You need somebody to come and to write those things on your heart. That's what Jesus came to do. And then Jesus says, Numbers chapter 21, which is just highlighting the fact that not only do we need him to come down, but we need him to be lifted up. We need him to be lifted up. Jesus said, just as the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, the Son of Man will be lifted up. Now this is a strange picture, especially if you don't know what's going on in Numbers 21. But let me read that to you real quick. Numbers 21, 5 through 9, says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. All right, just a little context for just a second. This is all found in the book of Exodus and Numbers, but God's people were enslaved. And they've prayed and they've cried out to God, would you rescue and save us? So God in his might and in his mercy, that's what he does. He comes and he rescues and he saves them. And then he leads them out to the wilderness by this man, Moses, who's leading the way, the one that's in charge of them. And then they get out there and they get angry and start to complain. And this is their sin. We don't think about complaining is sin, but God's about to to nail it right now. He's about to say, no, 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 your complaining is sin against me. And they're sitting here and they're complaining, we have no food, we have no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Wait, wait, there is food or there's not food? You have no food, but then we hate this worthless food? They had been hungry and they had been thirsty and they had prayed to God, God, would you give us something to eat and something to drink? God answers and they complain about it. This isn't the food we wanted. This isn't the rescue or redemption that we wanted. And this is a whole other sermon, but just a sidebar here. I mean, how often is that us? We pray for something from God and he gives it to us and we complain about it. I mean, how many of us a year ago were praying for a job and we got a job now and all we do is complain to others and are angry about it? How many of us have have prayed, God, would you bless us with a child and God gives us a child and then we just complain, we don't get enough sleep and we're mad about this and mad about that. Like God brings blessings into our lives, things we prayed for and then we turn and we complain about it, right? Whole nother, whole nother sermon. But getting back to this, verse six. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. How have they sinned? They complained and spoke against the leadership. We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And this is the image that Jesus is going to pull out in John 3. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at it and live. He would look at it and live. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. The Son of Man must be lifted up. we got 2,000 years of hindsight. We get that picture now. Jesus was lifted up on the cross where he stood in our place, took our pain and our suffering, right? And so when Jesus says here in verse 15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life, What he's saying is you got to look and believe. And from that image in in Numbers chapter 21, there's several things that, that highlight what we need to believe in order to find eternal life. First, we need to believe that we are sinners. That we're sinners. You see, think about this for a moment. The only people that got saved by looking at this pole were people that knew that they were dying. In Numbers, the only people that were able to be saved were people who were like, man, I'm going to die. I've been bitten by this thing. i got poison within me. And the only way that I'm going to live is if I look at that pole. See, the only way that we are going to be rescued and saved from our sins is when we stop and we're like, we are sinners who are lost in our sin. We are dead in our trespasses. And we have to look to Him, look to Christ. That's the only way that we can be saved. The only way we look to Him. You see, even if you think, well, I'm a good enough person and that sin that was in my life, it's behind me now. Even if that's you, 
Even if you can kill the snake that bit you, that poison is still in you. You can kill the snake, but you still have to find the cure, right? For some of us, for years, we're like, well, I've defeated that sin. But the, the, the poison is still in you. That sin is still there. The effects of that sin are still there. See, the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins is if we look to the one who hung in our place and took the poison for us. The one who took the curse and the shame for us. That's what we have to do. In order to believe and find this life, we have to realize first that we are dead in our sins. And we need a Savior. We need to be rescued. But second, this image that we find from the book of Numbers, we also need to understand that the only people that got healed were the people that looked. The reason why that's important is because it doesn't tell the people to do anything but look. If Numbers would have said, those of you that can muster up enough strength to touch the pole, then you'll be healed. Or those of you that can just muster up enough strength to, to walk and to cling to the pole. If you work hard enough, then you can be rescued and then you can be saved. If that were the case, then there would have been a lot more people that died. But what we're seeing here is, no, just look, just in faith believe that you'll be healed and look to that and you will be saved. You'll be redeemed. And Jesus the same way. It's not working your way to the foot of the cross and trying to cling to the foot of the cross with your works and your hands and your ways. It's by looking to his work. When he said it is finished, trusting that that counted for you. That's what it means. We look and we believe, not trusting in our works, but in his mighty work in our lives. That's what we rest in. That's what we trust in. God in his grace just says, look. Just look and believe. This isn't for the the great moral people who have kept all the laws, this is for the deep, dark center that we all have in our hearts. Look and believe. You'll be saved. Look and believe and I will cleanse you with water. Look and believe and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Look and believe and be saved. Now some of us that grew up in church are thinking right now, this is a great sermon for unchurched people. This is a great sermon for unchurched people. This is fantastic. Ryan, I know a lot of unchurched people that need to hear this. But I want you to realize this. This was written for religious people. John 3 is with a religious person, Nicodemus, who doesn't even see and know who Jesus is nor the kingdom of God is. He's been around the Bible a lot. He's been around a bunch of places that the name of God was spoken. He doesn't know him. So if you're sitting here thinking, that's a great sermon for unchurched people. No, you need to realize this is a sermon for you and for me. That we would understand these truths. That we with confidence would say, I know I am saved and redeemed. I know I'm a born again believer because I looked and I believed in Jesus. And what he did counted for me. Is that you? Is that you today? Bow your heads with me. Lord, I pray, I pray for um, us as a church that we would never, we'd never hide behind the camouflage of our religious works and miss the kingdom of God. May we know it is not our work, but it is your work 
that counts for us. So Lord, thank you. Thank you that yes, you descended from heaven and you ascended and one day you're coming again. Thank you for that, Lord. At the same time, thank you that you were lifted up. You were lifted up on the cross that we could be forgiven of our sins. Lord, we need life. We've been living in shame and guilt. We've been chained to all these things in this world that continue to drag us down. Lord, we need life. So Lord, help us to believe and live today. Lord, I pray for the one out there that has never made that commitment, that, that, that statement of, yes, I will follow you, and yes, I will believe in you. They've been living in the shadow of Christianity. I pray for that person that right now they would pray to you. And they would ask that you would save their soul, that you would give them that new birth that they need. And if that's you, pray. Pray to him now. It's not about the words, it's about the Savior. That's where our salvation comes from. So confess your sins and believe in him and know that you are born again. And Lord, for us within the church, may it never be that we were around the word of God and we were around God's people, but we didn't know God. God, convict us if we aren't in the faith. And your grace and your mercy change our hearts that we would believe and find assurance in you. God, it's because of your great work that we can live out these mysterious lives, lives of grace and sacrifice, lives of mercy and love and joy, lives of peace and comfort in troubled times. God, thank you for that. And Lord, I ask that we would live in such a way, we'd sing in such a way that people would wonder, that they would wonder. Help us to do that, I pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing now.